welcome to another episode of Poetry Says Everybody. My name is Alice and this is a chat with Janine Leanne, who is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic from Gundagai. And I got the chance to speak with Janine at her office at the University of Melbourne. She teaches creative writing and Aboriginal literature there. And she was so kind to give me an hour of her time. I have left in the sound of Janine's email notifications because I think it's important that we have that reminder of how intensely busy academics are. And again, I just so appreciated being able to spend a whole hour speaking with Janine. In preparing to talk with her, I found a lecture that she'd given at the University of Canberra. Janine was the first Indigenous woman to graduate from the University of Canberra and she was invited back to talk about what it was like to get into the course. Um, She studied education there and the challenges that she went through. She talks as well about giving her classmates an Aboriginal IQ test which they all failed um, which I think is just such a great story. So I start by asking Janine what it was like to be in Canberra in the 80s to be studying there, to be writing there. And we talk about the role of writing groups in her beginning to move from journaling into writing for publication. And then we discuss things including the understanding or lack thereof in settler culture of Aboriginal writing. You know, do critics and publishers really understand what it is they're reading? And we also discuss the differences between racism and white privilege towards the end of the discussion. We don't talk about Janine's poetry in this particular chat, although I do hope it's not our last, but I would really, really encourage you to look for a copy of Walk Back Over, which was published by Cordite last year. It's a really wonderful collection. And I will link to it in my show notes, of course. But for now, please enjoy this chat with Janine Leanne. Canberra in the 80s was really interesting and I'm writing a lot about that. It was really in a state of launch in many ways, like it was... And I guess, in a way, Australia too might have been like that on the cusp of things, but Canberra in particular. And I arrived there thinking, like, quite ambivalent, but also knowing very much that... And, you know, as an Aboriginal person, I don't don't know if this is that much written about but I really had to leave home to kind of find home like I had this connection at home but I also kind of outgrew that and also um there were movements all around and um I wanted to be in a more sort of empowering space I'd finished a degree and um yeah I didn't want to go back to the country So um, while I always had that big connection there and I can see how formative it was. And also I think that's what the women who raised me thought too, the older generation of women, Um, although they weren't quite sure where I was going to go. But, yeah, I ended up in Canberra and found it in the 
midst of these kind of amazing transitions. The, the Ngunnawal Centre wasn't built then and there was no, no central place for Aboriginal students to meet or identify or maybe not even find out about each other. Mm. In Canberra itself was different. I met other Aboriginal people very quickly. But at the university itself, I didn't meet any other Aboriginal people mm. um, for that year. And as the year went on and on, I think the more I said, I found myself more and more othered in that course, in that dip ed. I mean, it was quite... Um, in some ways, there was just myself and a couple of other people who'd come from, who hadn't gone to ANU. And so there was also quite a, a, a clique of people who knew each other and they'd only taken on small numbers of people in the dip ed that year mm. anyway, like they mm. only took about 50 or 60 people. So I found it challenging, actually. It can but be a very lonely place. It was quite a lonely place. But then I had some friends and also, um, yeah, look, I didn't particularly connect with a lot of people at university. Uh, one of my lecturers who, um, I think I was in her class and I were talking about, oh, I was really struggling with the conversation because it was about, Education was very much in transition too at that time when I was studying mm. and there's this and Canberra was very much at the centre of this kind of movement away from traditional education. Canberra had already moved into a community based model of schools where you're not like dictated by a central curriculum like New oh. South Wales or I didn't realise that. No, there is uh, there's a curriculum which has a couple of general um, guidelines, goals, but it's not mandated right down to the nitty-gritty of what you need to study because the community-based curriculum, it's more about skills. When you're in year 12, you'll need to have these skills. When you're in year 7, you should be able to do these things. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not you need to teach this book or yeah. these other books yeah. because um, that doesn't suit the communities that the schools are in. Mm. Mm. So the curriculum has to be a bit more um, flexible with the, to go with the community. and So there was that model and there was also a movement away from... So the school-based curriculum was very radical and quite new and there was also a move, big move away from chalk and talk towards our, like, student-centred learning, group learning. Mm. Plus, you know, Canberra schools were a bit of a law unto themselves in... <laughs> in some ways they were good like look, I thought they were great actually yeah. I still think they're really good schools but um it is a bit like that though isn't it ACC well compared does to uh, it does its thing and compared to New South Wales where I'd come out of Victoria where I'd seen there was no really and the schools had yeah uniforms but they weren't so the primary schools not all the high schools did the senior colleges none of them did um yeah there was this kind of very much more fluid and ethos of equality and rights of the student that was coming into play that was really important. The, co the college itself was pretty isolating. Um, yeah, and I remember designing this test, which was an Aboriginal IQ test in one of my academics classes yeah i wanted to ask you about that yeah yeah and then i gave it to she was fascinated first of all about how i might have known this stuff you know i could 
so we had this conversation about well this is this is like culture for me like things are innate you, you're kind of assuming things are innate for other people but this is kind of what it was like in my house and these are the kind of things we value anyway we gave the class to the rest it's so the test of the rest of the class and they um failed you know like this intelligence test which was the point and so you know Barbara was really encouraged she really wanted me to do that and I I did that but that was also a real othering kind of thing as well because then I was very much like and, and that manifests itself out in other ways you could be kind of find yourself loaded up with all these questions that bear out people's ignorance about aboriginality at the time mm-hmm. or you could find yourself the subject of all these questions that are overhangs from the eugenics policy and the cultural genocide like people sort of asking me how much aboriginal are you or um yeah mm. Um, but I thought it was very formative. Also, the women's movement was really, really, really humming in Canberra at the time. Uh, Tilly Devine's cafe was set up, which is still there. That's um, yep, Tilly's still there. Yeah, yeah. So you know the story about that. There's also, you know, several women's collectives around Lynham and O'Connor. Yeah. Um, there was also Tower Community Theatre happening in Canberra at the time. Mm-hmm. I met fairly quickly quite a large, and this is still my community, large and very functional urban Aboriginal community who are all living off pretty much off country mm-hmm. and have become to belong somewhere else. And Canberra is a very interesting country like that. That's not a wall country, as you would know, and that, that they're the... Ngunnawal, the Gambri peoples are the custodians, but as a place to, and um, you know, the the local elders have talked about this too, as a place, it always was like a place of transition and meeting. It doesn't actually mean meeting place, that's why like sort of white fellas actually yes, got I've that a bit wrong. Multiple it, doesn't times actually, it doesn't mean meeting place. It doesn't actually mean meeting place. Yeah. I mean, a lot of meetings happened there before white fellas came and obviously after. So it sort of functioned as a meeting place. But no, it has a has different meaning, which is related to well, like a women's space. And the actual space of the hills are the uh, breasts of a particular. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, it's great to... That's right. Yeah, so, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, well, uh, all that's what I learnt when I first came to Canberra. Yeah, so right. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and on isolating, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think anyone likes to be isolated or othered. But regarding, I don't. I don't. But also, I don't mind spending time on my own. Um, I think, as a creative, I was a naturally kind of reclusive person. There are times when I don't mind my own company and my own kind of way to reflect on things and process things. Um, So, you know, there's certain situations that I tend to withdraw myself from. I don't think I'm overly social anyway. Yes, no, nor am I. (laughs) I can Um, absolutely identify with everything you're saying. So, Yeah. yeah, I think... Not so much, um, because, and also I'm very much the sort of person who prefers to make friends slowly, find my own sort of friends, and then some of the friends I've made slowly over time, Mm. 
in all sorts of communities are still my friends. Um, I don't kind of feel the need to just go out and socialise because I don't want to be by myself. So on that note, Canberra was good too because it is that kind of place where kind of a lot of people feel independent and spend a bit of time on their own. And yeah, you can you can be alone and you can be alone in so many different ways. In so many different yeah. ways too. And then... Um, but also having the choice too because, you know, I found a community and then friends and then other things happened. Then I had my own family. and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's an interesting space, Canberra, one I'm sort of writing about or trying to write about a bit more at the moment. Yeah, that's exciting. That's really mm. exciting. Um, you spoke a little bit in the lecture about uh, working with a writing group in Canberra at the time. I joined a writing group that was just had just formed, yeah, in the mm. late 90s. I joined a writing group that had not that long before that formed right. in one way or another. And yeah. yeah. Mm. I was wondering whether writing groups have been a bit of a constant for you in terms of writing uh, poetry and prose or if it's more been more of a solitary. Uh, I think both. I mean, I tend to work a lot more by myself now but that's you know that could be also just a time and an age thing although I do try to get to writers groups and workshops um at regular intervals if I can mm-hmm. as an early career writer um and you know when I first emerged again after having three children and was going to go back into the workforce after teaching for quite a while then having a break for the children then I was going to go back into the workforce the writers group the Aboriginal writers group in the 1990s and particularly the women who were founding it and the women who've kept it going because in a different form like the writers group has evolved but in a different form I think it's an early career writer and someone who had had some bad experiences with non-Aboriginal writing groups because they just didn't get the cultural context, I think, of some of the early stories and poems that I was first experimenting with writing Mm -hmm. when I moved from journaling because I journaled all my life, but it was sort of like really in the early 90s when I started trying to move out of journaling into or do something with what I journaled, I suppose, not move out of journaling. But um, that writer's group in the beginning was really, really important, like for for encouragement, for the experience of some of the older writers who were in the group. You know, there were uh, older, established Aboriginal writers like uh, Jennifer Martiniello um, and then Annie Kerry Reed Gilbert who came... Um, who were there all that all that time, you know, came to the group very early um, and um, put a lot of time into mentoring the writing of younger writers. But also, um, but the term of a younger writer was not just about years or age. Right, right? Yeah. It was about where the writer was. Mm. And I think that was lacking from a lot of other writing groups as well. And, um, yeah, it, as well as the mentoring in terms of writing techniques, 
it was about learning that what we were writing was actually quite worthwhile and that it was like you know settlers it was settler society that had to learn how to read our work and yeah that's sort of my research and my creative work sort of tended to really come together once I started writing and I'd always wanted to do some more research about legacies and literary representations because I'd always obsessed over the literary representations of us, of Aboriginal people in white literature as a student of literature. So, um, yeah, the two kind of things that I really wanted to do started to come together a lot better. It sounds really like such a great group. I'm so happy to hear it still exists. It's yeah, it's um, sort of evolved and some people have come and and you know come to the group for a while left the group and done other things and some people have been consistent almost for the last 20 years or so over time the group got a name and now it's called us mob writing um, oh, okay yeah yeah mm-hmm. and they're a really kind of strong long running writers group it wasn't called that right at the beginning we used to just call ourselves the act um indigenous writers group mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested in what you said there about settler readers needing to learn how to read. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that there's been any significant change in that since maybe when you joined that group? Um, Do you have any sense of any deepening of understanding on the part of, say, publishers, critics out there in the world? Critics, I think... And, you know, some scholars have really come... I mean, there's still a lot that needs to be done. I mean, critics and scholars, yes, but that's not... Yes, some and some not. But the real need is in secondary schools. Like, I just meet too few people who... By the time I meet students at third-year level who, who do my Aboriginal writing class... Most of them have not done Aboriginal literature in high school and none of them have done any in primary school. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. what I'm mm. talking about. Yeah, mm. there's there's settler scholars who've most likely learnt from other Aboriginal scholars or read other Aboriginal scholars and I think there's some been some movement there in terms of engagement, not just engagement, but with how to read Aboriginal literature uh, Michael Griffiths wrote quite a... I reviewed it for the Across Australian Critical Whiteness Race Studies or something like that. <laughs> Across a review. But, um, yeah, Distribution of Settlement was a book by a settler scholar called Michael Griffiths who stresses the importance of what I wrote about in my PhD and things like that and other articles I've written or said, like the Dorothy Green Address on Settler Literature, that looks at going back to read the representations of settler literature of Aboriginal people, that damage and that control, and understanding settler history towards Aboriginal people as an ongoing process and not 
just relying on literature about Aboriginal people anymore, but actually having... Because there is a lot of Aboriginal writing out there. And, yeah, there's room for new stories, but there's a wealth of writing out there that is still not going enough on the school curriculum as it should. That's yeah. where people really need to learn to read Aboriginal literature. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some scholars, some critics. Publishers, again, are a different story because um, I think the market can sometimes be problematic and I think they... I think there's a danger there and probably a little bit too much of an uneven sway that publishers have in terms of choosing what Aboriginal story they think may or may not market. Right. Mm. In terms of one that already fits those representations that people are comfortable with? Oh, no, no, or necessarily, or one that has all the cultural markers of an Aboriginal story. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Yeah, that that reminds me of uh, another thing that you said in the Ngunnawal lecture, which was that you encountered resistance in a number of your students to kind of shifting their ideas, like their received ideas around Aboriginality. Um, And I was wondering whether that, it sounds like that that must be something that you encounter even today because people aren't getting this education very early. It's Yeah, this kind of... I did mention that in particular in the Ngunnawal lecture because I began my career in tertiary education as working with uh, education students, um, like potential teachers, teacher education students who were coming in and this was from the early 2000s onwards and <clears throat> the idea of doing compulsory it's it's you know it's terrible but it was also quite new like it was only the 90s or so that depending where you were that courses in aboriginal education the history of aboriginal education were even made compulsory in mm. teaching degrees right so then in the early 2000s, I was working with not everyone, but I was working with a certain critical mass of students who were quite resistant to the idea of having to do that compulsory subject in the first place. So like there was that, and that's what's kind of like happens with a lot of compulsory subjects, but yeah. And then, yeah, there was quite a lot of work to do then and I could imagine that in education courses now there still is quite a lot of work to do the difference now is that I teach classes in Aboriginal at the University of Melbourne classes in Aboriginal literature and creative writing that people choose right and so you meet a different cohort of students Mm -hmm. but and also I am talking about 19 years later. Right. But there was initially a tremendous amount of resistance, A, to having to, the resentment and resistance to why do we have to study a whole semester, which is really quite a drop in the ocean, really. That's hardly anything. (laughs) But, yeah, you get that attitude. Why do we have to study a whole semester of Aboriginal education? And why does it have to be compulsory? And, yeah, there was quite a bit of backlash, I remember thinking. And I'm not sure. And I think compulsory subjects, it's tougher Mm. anyway. 
Right. Um, it's tougher when you're trying to shift ingrained racial attitudes. So that was quite tough. There was a lot of reticence to shift attitudes that had been ingrained by previous literary legacies of representations of Aboriginal people in all sorts of deficit discourse. Yep. And it was really hard for... for... I don't know if hard's the word. Students were really resistant to... to shifting their stereotypes and to letting go of those kind of images that they were comfortable with. Right. And... and to kind of stop stop always seeing yeah to learn the difference between and I think this is still a big challenge learning the difference between racism and white privilege okay because I know like not a lot of people are actively racist there's some plenty still are but you, you know okay there are not there are some people who are not racist but they still have a tremendous they still experience they still have white privilege because they are part of the majority there's so many things they don't have to worry about mm. uh, there's so many things they don't have to consider and even in the language of such people while true they are not the type these are I'm talking about the set of people who are not active racists and who in other ways like to see themselves as educated and aware but still, to an extent, fail to see the invisible privilege they have. Right. Mm. I do yeah. some workshops on that for staff. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And oh, I just, just some examples. Talk about what don't you have to do if you have white privilege? You don't have to put up with a certain amount of questions about where do you come from even if you're an indigenous person because most aboriginal people get that question and settler people ask that question a lot that's white privilege they ask that question to people who look different and think it's a completely benign question where do you come from it's very rude it means what are you doing here what do you like it sort of assumes they have some sort of ownership it's not particularly well put mm. um then, you know, that sort of often opens a process by when you say, well, here, and then depending on that, how well or not educated or otherwise that person is, you get it, you sort of go into this conversation about Aboriginality, which everybody has an opinion about, and that's why it privileges <laughs> Everybody's got an opinion about it, right. and people think the most benign comments are okay. Like, following on from the where do you come from question, I once said that, answered that question to someone, I explained, I'm, I'm a Rajari. She went, oh, I would never have picked you as an Aboriginal person. And just walked away. And I'm nice. like thinking that's not, like, seriously, people say things like that to not just me, to all sorts of people. Mm -hmm. Or they might say, oh, right, you don't really look like that. Or stuff, you know, like, yeah. you know what I mean? See, that's incredibly rude and that's a tremendous sense of privilege. I don't think that they experience the opposite. Mm. Or sometimes even not badly intended, but people who will come up and ask the biggest questions and think it's, think it's simple 
even among my own colleagues, sometimes people will say to me, oh, that was terrible. If they saw something on the news about Aboriginal people, they might say, oh, that was terrible. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. Can you explain to me why it's like that, though? <laughs> Which yeah. I'm sure you have plenty of time to do. <laughs> and I think that often people say those kind of things to you on the run, too. Like, you yeah. might be able to do it in five minutes or over a cup of coffee or something like that. Mm. And it might not be my place to explain particular, depends what they, what in particular they're referring to, what incident or event or whatever they're referring It might not even be my place to give an opinion. Those things are all part of white privilege. But there's a whole lot more questions. What else don't you have to do? You don't have to go back and learn your language again because you weren't allowed to speak it. Uh, you don't have to kind of always live up to or answer to people's stereotypes or deficiency theories like the things I told you about can you tell me why Aboriginal people do this or uh, yeah that happened here a few weeks ago someone came and said I've got an Aboriginal student in my class and they reacted to this in this particular way can you tell me why can you explain that to me wow that, that's, yeah wow <laughs> that's so yeah, that's kind of like race privilege, yeah. Yeah. And do you run those workshops? Is that something that you decided to do to, to establish? Um, I, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. Wow. Um, I spoke to my head of program and my head of school about the need to do those things, to, to have it based on then having been here for two years and just some of the things I heard, like those things I was just telling you about, like, you know, those questions that people ask me or, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. or even just getting, I don't even think people have even heard of white privilege, a lot of people. Or if they did, they would have confused it with racism. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I suggested that. But I did... There, my this program, the creative writer writing program, um, was really supportive of of that. So that was good. That's great. So um, I did some workshops for the creative writing program, and but you know I think the university wide could benefit from some workshops myself. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just in hearing all that. I mean, I think in, in preparing for, to speak with you and um, thinking about doing this interview, I've been really conscious of uh, the questions I wanted to ask because I wanted to, as much as I possibly could, as you know, white settler interviewer, um, not position you in that mm. in that way. So I wanted to. Um, I've really kept you, I'm afraid. I wanted to end uh, just by just by saying, um, uh, what are some of the questions that you never get asked that you would like to talk through or like to be asked? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. There is this pigeonholing of Aboriginal people that we might never get asked, hey, what do you really like to do? I was talking to an Aboriginal friend of mine whose expertise is like classical Greek, right? Yeah. So some more conversations about classical Greek for her would be really good. Right, And yeah. 
yeah, her interest and why and um, yeah, all these and and to that she brings classical Greek is an old language and yeah, she's also descended from a very people who speak a very old language. So there is that kind of something really special she brings to that, but it's her bringing her Aboriginality into that area and sometimes I think we both feel like we would like to talk more about those kind of things Um, and not always just be pigeonholed into these like what do you think of all things Aboriginal questions (laughs) yeah exactly yeah um, um, hopefully we haven't done too much of that, but oh probably no, has straight um, in that way. I think that this was good. Um, and so one of the things I'd like to talk about more too, I mean, I'd like to talk more about like news stories and things that um, that Aboriginal people that I'm meeting who are young as writers, they're not necessarily young in terms of youth years, but they are people, some are, and some are actually like middle-aged people, but they haven't been um, writing for publication for very long. And there's a lot of news stories there too. Right. That will move away from many of the important things that Aboriginal writers are already writing about. Like there was quite a good article in The Guardian a few days ago by Alison Whitaker who talked about white critics um, and I think you should read that article but it was basically look the limitations of white critics and I've talked about the limitations in several essays I've written and in the I have an ARC project uh, grant at the moment to look at Unipon literature which oh, I'm okay I was going to ask you about that project yeah bringing that that will finish this year um part of that like a large part of that is looking at the voices of authors but also a large part of that is well how do you read aboriginal literature and here's a way forward here's the limitations of western literary analysis and there are some useful things in western literary analysis but here's the limitations of western literary analysis and here's how you read this body of work but also this body of work is not contained and yeah there's great Aboriginal writers out there who are writing about history and about land and about the many different political agendas that permeate all aspects of Aboriginal life but there all are also new stories out there of Aboriginal people in different situations, of Aboriginal people who don't live in Australia, of Aboriginal people who don't write about uh, land or politics or um, who experience more nuanced encounters with the settler population, like not so much the overt racism of previous times but experience a different kind of subtle and insidious kind of white privilege in different that I talked about in different situations that is very subtle and these are new stories that people want to write about. Mm